the Bain Free Radio Hour. Now on the podcast, shapeshifters on the rampage in London and Colorado, asteroids headed for Earth, possibly with loads of cash, David Drake on Byzantine battler Belisarius, his first sale to Jim Bain, not Belisarius's first sale, Dave's, and the life, death, and mountain magic of manly Wade Wellman, and part five of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Today we have part two of our interview with Bain author extraordinaire David Drake. Now, Dave hates to be characterized that way, that is, as extraordinaire, but we can't resist, and he deserves it. In addition to a mountain of other books, Dave is the author of new RCN novel, the Road of Danger, and the co-author of current general series Rebirth Entry, The Heretic. Also, we have part five of our continuing complete serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Now, how's them cookies? Tasty indeed. But first, a bit of news. Ahoy! The new eARCs are available at BainEbooks.com. What is an eARC, you may ask? Well, an eARC is the unit of measurement for planetary apocalyptic events, such as, oh, that meteor strike registers a 4.5 on the eARC scale. Or is it? What are these things, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey? An eARC is an electronic advanced reader's copy. We make them available. Wait, I got that totally wrong then. Yeah. Okay. There, uh, we make them available for sale on our baneebooks.com site well in advance of the actual book publication. You pay a premium for it, but you're getting it as soon as we get it from the straight from the author's hands, just about. These are uncorrected. We know they're full of typos and this mistakes. This was uh, what used to be known as galleys, galley proofs, correct? Yes. Uh, galleys. Uh, that is Bane Editor Emeritus Hank Davis, who's with us. So, we have three new eARCs to tell you about. First is Sarah A. Hoyt's Noah's Boy. This is a new entry in Sarah A. Hoyt's celebrated Shifter contemporary fantasy series. It's the sequel to Gentleman Takes a Chance and Draw One in the Dark. Now, back before I became a mighty Bane editor and was still writing ad copy for Bane, <clears throat> I still write ad copy for Bane. Thank you, Laura. Very good, too. <laughs> and now I can pester you for it in person. Anyway, I read these books and loved them back then, and we're really pleased to bring the series to an exciting point in the storyline, where the stakes are raised to universe-threatening levels. Uh, we find out lots of stuff about how the shifters came to be, and their purpose, and why Goldport, Colorado is maybe an interdimensional nexus. Also out as an eARC is a new entry in the hottest military science fiction series of all time. Yes, talking about Honor Harrington. The eARC is Beginnings, Worlds of Honor 6, which means this is the sixth volume in the popular Worlds of Honor series and includes stories by Charles E. Gannon, Timothy Zahn, 
Joel Presby, and David Weber himself. Can you explain a bit of what these World of Honor uh, books are? Main editor emeritus Hank Davis. Well, this all started back in 1998, which seems like yesterday to me, but probably not to everybody, when uh, Jim May suggested to David Weber that perhaps we might do, as had been done with the Mad Gazette Morris series, uh, have some additional writers uh, operating in a shared universe with Otto Harrington. Uh, David Weber said, really cool, although I, I believe he requested that uh, Otto Harrington not appear in other writers' stories, that they would be uh, off uh, in, in another part of the forest, you might say. And this began with a book called More Than Honor, which led to confusion because the second book was called Worlds of Honor, and from that point on, they were all called Worlds of Honor number X, and we're up to six now, which occasionally leads people to write and ask, where's Worlds of Honor number one? Because Worlds of Honor number one doesn't call itself Worlds of Honor. Well, it's so, going to be even more confusing now because we're calling this one Beginnings, right. <laughs> Worlds of Honor 6. Yes. Even though it's the beginnings, it's not the first book. Yeah, so this, it's this the sixth will, book. It'll all come out in the wash someday. But uh, this, th we've had some real, really good stuff, including uh, popular writers like John Ringo contributing and David Drake. And uh, it's been quite successful. And they give uh, ex excellent background for Otter's universe, or as we call it, the Otterverse. So if you can't get enough, David Weber, here's more uh, from the Otterverse, from, from even more writers. And finally, we have the e-art for John Lambshead's excellent contemporary fantasy, Wolf in Shadow. It's now available. Lambshead co-wrote Into the Hinterlands with David Drake. Uh, that is a very cool science fiction adventure. He's also the author of historical fantasy, Lucy's Blade. And this one, Wolf in Shadow, is one about a dangerous world of demons and shapeshifters on the streets of modern-day London. Got a very cool cover by... Who is the artist, Laura? Dave Seeley. Dave Seeley. All of these are available at Bain eBooks, BainEbooks.com. Get ahead of the curve and check them out. Also want to remind everyone that this month and every month, there is new fiction and nonfiction on the Bain.com website. This is absolutely free. This month, we've got Sky Spark by Reich E. Spore. This is set in the Boundary Universe, the series that Reich is doing with Eric Flint. And we have an excellent piece on asteroids as both menace to Earth and potential bounty of resources by renowned space scientist Dr. Greg Matloff. So check out those at Bain.com right there on the front page. David Drake graciously sat down with us and provided so much great material for the podcast, we wanted to split the interview into parts to get it all in. In part one... Dave discussed his latest RCN novel, The Road of Danger, and the genesis of the General series, and his latest collaboration in that series, which would be with me, Tony Daniel, on the novel The Heretic, which is now available in hardcover. With Dave and me in the studio were Bain editor Jim Menz, Bain editor emeritus Hank Davis, and Bain associate editor Laura Haywood Corey. Here is part two of our recent interview with David Drake. But uh, I, I should, although it doesn't matter to you, 
Uh, <laughs> but the next thing Jim did <laughs> was call and say, hey, we ought to give a supercomputer to Belisarius himself. I said, all right, I can plot those. And um, they called me back the next day. I said, oh, that won't work. He, Belisarius was already so far ahead of everybody else in his day that there, there was already no contest. And I said, Jim, if I hadn't figured that out during our previous conversation, I wouldn't have said yes. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's where the Belisarius series came from. Which is by you and Eric Flint. Uh, well, and, uh, see, a host of they're they're all. I just did the plot. I never had anything to do with picking who was going to develop them. Jim immediately hired this utter newbie, whose first book he just bought, Eric Flint, uh, to develop them. And he said, oh, he's he's a lot better than Sterling, and and he's a commie, <laughs> uh, which you know. Uh, they, well, we just uh, we just interviewed him for the show, and he's still a commie. Oh, of course he is. Yeah, I mean that much was true. Uh, he he or and Steve like have that. different um, have different view- virtues, uh, but uh, but they're both extremely good, and they're both New York Times bestsellers. I might add, uh, which I, by the way, am not. So, well, let's all right. Let's change tracks for a moment and talk about your. Uh, it, Go back in time for uh, for Dave Drake uh, and talk about your story collection, Night and Demons, that just is out from Bain uh, in trade paperback. It's going to be out next uh, fall also in mass market. October, paperback. just in time for the Halloween market. Yes, it has a beautiful cover of a very, very zombie-looking... Uh, very, very zombie. Yeah, that, that's a straight... Is, now, was that Dave Seeley? Uh, who's the artist on that? Do we know? Uh, I don't know. So, uh, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey has uh, tripped into the room on on twinkling toes, and she knows the uh, the cover artist for uh, Night and Demons. Can you tell us, fill us in on that, Laura? It's Alan Pollock. Ah, uh, it's Pollock. Alrighty. Um, really so, creepy cover. It's great. This is some of your earlier work and some that centered on horror or alternate history with a horror element in it. Other. Other than the great stories, what I found fascinating about the book were your introductions to the stories. These are rather extensive, and you get us a you give us a pretty good tour through the coming of age of Dave Drake, the writer. About we, twelve thousand words of introductions in those, which you know, really it was more than I expected until I was done. Big book. Yeah, and they're great. Um, it, it's it's sort of a autobiographical journey. We meet influential figures like uh, Arkham, like writer and Arkham House uh, editor August Derleth, and fantasy writer Manly Wade Wellman. Mm. Uh, it's fascinating stuff, especially for anybody interested in the history of science fiction, fantasy, and horror genres. Uh, it's worth picking up just for that. So let's start with Derleth. Uh, you wrote. In one of your introductions, I was so devastated by my first acceptance that it was another six more months before I even tried to write a story. <laughs> you must feel awful now because you've had so much acceptance. No, but... no, that, that was poorly worded. What I meant was he bought the, the story, but with a really brutal... You, you hear about brutal rejection letters? This was a brutal acceptance letter. <laughs> I I had... Revised, I revised a, an 1800 word story to which he responded, 
Well, this is a nice. How, how old were you at this time? Um, you were 19, in your teen. Yeah, nineteen. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a good plot outline. Now write the story. So I expanded it to all of oh three thousand, maybe thirty five hundred words. And he wrote back saying, well, this still isn't right. Uh, you know, cut out all the purple passages. Well, I didn't know what a purple passage was. I, I had been modeling the story on a collection of Derleth's own work, which was hack work. He even said it was... The title of the collection was Not Long for This World, and he says in the introduction, well, you know, there are good stories and there are bad stories, but I, I think the title of this collection is is pretty self-explanatory. So, But I'm, I'm too naive to figure this out. I mean, so I didn't know what he meant by purple passages, and I, I fiddled with it. You didn't see purple ink anywhere? No, no, no. I thought, hmm. Uh, there was a reference to the the movie version of Bride of Frankenstein, I believe. You know, a scene reminding him of the uh, the halo of light from Bride of Frankenstein or something, which actually wasn't such a bad thing. And I think a lot of people in the you know in the field would have recognized that scene, but but he didn't like it. And I say that because my the next letter I got was, you still don't have it right. <laughs> well, here's $35, and I'll rewrite it myself. <laughs> and if you don't like these terms, just send the money back. And compare your carbon with the version as printed and learn how not to write a story again. So that's what I mean about a brutal acceptance. So that was your first acceptance. <laughs> that was, yeah, yeah. yep. <laughs> I have, I've had lots of rejections since, but I have never had a rejection, you know, nearly comparable to that. And so, did you go ahead and do that comparison then? Look at the carbon in the. I was so stupid, and I and I, I avoided having to, you know, you having to bleep a word there. I was so stupid that I didn't even know I was supposed to make a carbon. <laughs> However, when the story came out two years later, I did recognize that the Bride of Frankenstein was gone. So that's why I know that that was one of the things to which he took exception. <laughs> he <wanted> to cut. <laughs> well, that was the beginning of uh, of 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 it all. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. So it was all uphill from there. <laughs> yes. Uh, Manly Wade Wellman. I he wrote the. Uh, Silver John series, or John the Balladeer stories, uh, these are Appalachian uh, folk magic tales, and they're favorites of mine. Uh, in fact, you can get these in ebook form at baneebooks.com. They are the center section of an ebook called Mountain Magic, which is a compilation of stories. Uh, we, we'll put a link at the podcast forum site there. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stories. Yeah. Yeah, I did, now you did a series of stories that's a bit of an homage to Wellman. Can you explain uh, who your relationship to Wellman and how that came about? Uh, Manley and I were friends. Um, I knew he lived in Chapel Hill when I came to Durham uh, for Duke Law School. 
but I didn't have the guts to actually meet him. I mean, this this is a writer I'd been reading since I was 12 years old, and I I had read the uh, the John stories when I could find them in fantasy and science fiction, um, and then the Arkham House collection, which was um, strung together as a novel. The John stories strung together as a novel, uh, but I'd read lots of Manley. Manley did a lot of novels for the pulps. Uh, and novel at that time meant thirty to 50,000 words, and so they were, were easy to reprint in um, Ace Doubles of the time, which were short, or the Avalon um, hardcover, the Avalon science fiction series. Um, so I'd read really a lot of manly stuff. Uh, finally, I got drafted out of law school and went through my various training, uh, basic and then language school and then interrogation school. And I was back home with my next stop to be Vietnam. And I thought, you know, if I get my ass blown away and I haven't met Manly Wade Wellman, when I've had years that I could have done it, I will feel like a real idiot. And if that sounds strange, trust me, it was a strange time, and not just in my head, but certainly in my head. And uh, I phoned him. He very graciously, as he always did. Uh, he was a very gracious man. Um, invited me to come up an afternoon to his office in downtown Chapel Hill. I did, and we chatted for a little while. And he told me to write him after uh, I got to Vietnam. I did. And um, he had a close friend already living in Chapel Hill at the time in medical school, uh, Carl Edward Wagner, who... As Manley said, yeah, he's uh, he he writes himself. He uh, he's doing that Robert E. Howard stuff, um, which was true. Uh, Carl was doing um, sword and sorcery at the time, and very oddly, um, a fellow that had gone through language school and interrogation school with me and wound up in Cambodia with me, um, with 2nd Squadron, you know, another interrogator. Uh, it was Larry Barnthouse, who'd been Carl's roommate at Kenyon as an undergraduate. And uh, so Carl sent his first novel to Larry Barnthouse <laughs> in Cambodia, and that's where I read Carl's first novel, <laughs> Darkness Weaves. Uh, and, you know, that's not a coincidence I would want to put in fiction. Uh, but Larry and I both got back to the world, and he visited Carl in Chapel Hill. And we have Carl's novels, uh, they're Bain books. Some um, of them are. A couple of them were actually brought out by Bain, but um, you did the ebook versions of... Uh, of the novels for Nightshade. 
So right. we'll put we'll put links to those yeah. up as well. Um, but I c- came over to dinner with Carl's when Larry was there. We met, and he knew Banley very very well, and the three of us got together regularly for well, really the the rest of Manley's life. And um, that was another 15 years. And then in the last 10 months, Manley fell and fell and broke his arm very badly. And the the wonderful orthopedics department at UNC put put his arm back together perfectly and sent him home. Unfortunately, he didn't move for three days, basically and wound up with bed sores in his heels because he was sitting up in a chair with his feet on a slightly lower hassock. And the um, he wound up with bed sores, and he had bad circulation. And so he basically never got out of bed. They cut pieces off him bit by bit. And so for 10 months, I had reliable transportation, which Carl didn't. And um, I I'm, was by then a full-time freelance writer. And so my time was my... <laughs> I don't mean I wasn't working, but I do mean I, I had time to get out every day. And I spent a lot of time in that last 10 months with Manley. Uh, I deeply regret the last 10 months for his sake, but he was using me consciously as a way to dump his memories. What did you talk about? Everything. Uh, He had had quite a life as a reporter, correct? Oh, yeah. He he was born in Angola. His father was a, a doctor. He was not a medical missionary. He was a doctor hired by, I think, the Presbyterian Church to set up a clinic in central Angola. There wasn't another white man except Banley's family within 50 miles. For and He lived in Angola for 10 years. He spoke the native language. He had stories about, you know, growing up uh, with him and his two brothers and the uh, and the rest of their playmates were members of the uh, Kamandongo tribe and uh, you know stories about the 10-year-old herd boy who speared the leopard and then was given a feast at which he dished out pieces of the leopard to all the men in the tribe with the the leopard's hide wrapped around his shoulders as he did it, and the men singing chants of praise for this boy. Uh, you, you can't invent that stuff. I mean, Manley lived in the Stone Age. Uh, he, he really understood at a basic level things most people never do. Uh, then, you know, they came back to the U.S. Uh, his father disappeared. His father was a very bright, very talented, utter scum. 
and uh, his father ran off with the uh, daughter of the president of Tulane, disappeared into South America. She later wrote as Evelyn Scott and as a fairly famous writer herself. She, she was picked to introduce William Faulkner's first book, uh, which gives you a notion of her stature in the 20s. Um, but Manley then, his family moved, the abandoned family, moved to Arkansas where he lived with um, his uh, various aunts and his great uncle Manley, uh, for whom Manley had been named. Uh, when they wrote Great Uncle Manley from Angola that they were naming the boy after him, Manley wrote back, don't name him after me, name him after the general. Uh, because Great Uncle Manley had ridden with Wade Hampton, uh, the Confederate general, and a uh, brilliant general. Uh, along with Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, two of the best cavalry generals that the United States, well, that the American continent has ever given the mm. world, um, Phil Sheridan being a third and an equal. But uh, so Manley grew up around rural Arkansas and this is probably where he began developing this uh, his his ear for uh, for American folk traditions yes, and things. Absolutely. Like that. Well, what did you uh, what did he mean to you and your development as a writer? He was um, my friend. Yeah. Uh, I w I was never Manley's student. I, I learned a lot from Manley, uh, but that was from reading his work, and that was you know um, in large measure before I ever met him. A uh, wonderful writer. Um, wonderful storyteller. Uh, he, he understood stuff that he couldn't put into words. And I came to the point that I, when I understood some stuff myself after I came back to the world, came back from Nam, uh, I understood what he'd been saying in some of these things. And it, you know, the work really resonates at a very deep level. But uh, we were friends. We, The three of us, uh, Carl wasn't his student either. But we would get together, we would have dinner, we would chat, we would chat about story ideas, we would sometimes read whatever we'd most recently written. Uh, Manley had been out of the uh, science fiction fantasy field for well, really some time, uh, since the early 60s, basically. Um, and now a decade later, because Carl and I were doing this and because there were new markets, uh, semi-pro things like, um, well, you know, just uh, various semi-pro things, uh, British anthology series uh, coming out. These all They paid a, a penny a word or maybe two cents a word at most. But um, we would read stories to one another, and Manley started writing the fantasy uh, again. And um, then he got into doing novels for Doubleday, and he then wound up writing the six uh, 
Silver, Silver John is actually coinage by Doubleday, not Manley. He never minded the name. Carl hated it, uh, but uh, Manley never minded. Manley never, Manley's name was, you know, repeatedly, probably at least 20% of the time, his name was misspelled on the covers of books and magazines. And he never got bent out of shape about that. That He was a professional. He was a pulp writer and he he never took himself too seriously. He always did the best work he could, always. And he was truly an inspiration and remains an inspiration to this day. Um, that's what he's to me. Yeah, um, well, you know, it's interesting you talk about how these people are very formative to your life early on in your writing career. And of course, you've talked about Jim Bain's influence on your career. But I'm always been curious about how you and Jane, you and Jim first connected. I mean, <laughs> where, where does that relationship begin? Because I feel there's probably something involved there. Uh, another brutal acceptance. Yeah, well, hey, not, not nearly no, as bad. Not as brutal. No, um, I was writing science fiction short stories in the 70s. And I wrote a story for Fred Pohl for an anthology, uh, which was the first Hammer story. And Fred rejected it saying, well, this is for beginning readers and this story just requires you to know too much about SF and too much about the military both for this anthology. Okay. So I wrote another story, and, and I, I wasn't doing anything. I was taking my military service with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment and just putting it into a science fiction context. And it didn't strike me I was doing anything unusual because lots of people had done things like that. What I didn't appreciate at the time was that most of the people doing it didn't have any real combat experience. And so I, I wrote another story for Fred, this time using a, a brand new recruit so that things could be explained to him. And uh, because I already had the setting from the previous one, um, I used uh, the Hammer's Regiment, a microcosm of it. Again, I mean, I wasn't trying to write a, a series. I was just trying to sell a story to Fred Pohl, and he rejected that one too. Uh, that was under the hammer. Um, so my agent shopped them around, and everybody rejected them. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd sold a story to Analog, and I would sell other stories to Analog, but the uh, the editor of Analog uh, sent them back sent these back saying, well, we've already got Joe Haldeman and, uh, this is Ben Bova, by the way, uh, we've already got Joe Haldeman and Jerry Parnell writing the same stuff, so I don't think we need three. Which, it, it gives you a notion of just how military SF was viewed, that Jerry Parnell, Joe Haldeman, and I were regarded by a, a very intelligent, competent editor is being interchangeable. So one of the places that they bounced was uh, Galaxy. And 
then my agent Kirby called and said uh, that the editor of Galaxy, who was entirely incompetent, but, uh, well, he'd been fired, and his, uh, his assistant had been given the job. And the assistant uh, had recommended purchase of the Hammer stories in the past, and now that he was in, uh, asked Kirby to send them back and bought them. So that's how the Hammer series. And the assistant was Jim Bain. And <laughs> later, I, uh, when Jim and I became friends, I, I thanked him for, uh, you know, for getting those stories back. And Jim said, <laughs> Oh, David, Jake rejected much better stories than yours. You know, Jim, he admitted he did not like the stories, but he, because uh, finances of Galaxy were dodgy, and everybody got paid, but that was by no means a guarantee, and Jim was always emphasized that he would use his best efforts to get paid for, you know, for his writers, but he would not guarantee it. And um, so he wasn't getting first look at much, and that meant most of what he got was had to be heavily edited. And mine was in literate English. I mean, I am, after all, a graduate of Duke Law School. Uh, <laughs> I He didn't have to edit mine, and that's why he bought them. It was really that simple. Uh, Obviously, there's a huge amount of other stuff we would love to cover with Dave, and it's our fervent hope to do so as these podcasts continue. He's a Bane legend, and we're proud to have him with us today. With a capital L. Yes. Imagine back then that someone would say Bane legend, and uh, yeah. we would all know what it means. Look, it, it really deeply bothers me now. You know, I'm I'm still... 40 years back in my head, and and I guess that's okay, but believe me, I do not feel like a, a legend. Well, you're still that struggling writer writing, uh, trying to get uh, August Durla to take uh, your... No, but I'm trying very hard every day to do the best possible job I can, and I finish, and I'm in the middle of a book now, and you know, it's always crap. In the middle of any project, it's utter crap. And I just, I get up in the morning and I follow my extensive outline and I keep on slogging. Uh, but not because I think it's any good, uh, but it's just like the way we bust jungle in Cambodia. You know, it's the job, it's in front of us, so just keep on going. Well, thank you, Dave, for being with us today. And... Thanks to Jim Menz and Hank Davis and for Laura Haywood Corey for uh, stepping in with essential information. And being beautiful. Uh, absolutely. Uh, David Drake's latest RCN novel, The Road of Danger, is available in paperback and, of course, still in hardcover and ebook form at uh, baneebooks.com. His excellent collection, Night and Demons, is out in trade paperback. And a new entry in the general series, The Heretic by Tony Daniel and Dave Drake. Uh, is out just now in hardcover and ebook as well. And now we continue with our mighty and awesome audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. 
This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. I've been an Audible subscriber for years. I listen to my audiobooks on commutes and runs, and I highly recommend the service. Okay, here's what has gone before. In the first part of Shadow of Freedom, we open on Halkirk, a planet in the Loomis system, under the thumb of the autocratic Solarian League. The planet's bloodthirsty, tyrannical rulers are in league with Solarian interest to bleed the system dry of natural resources while keeping the inhabitants under the boot hill of the dictatorship. A rebel resistance movement has risen, the Loomis Liberation League. The provosts, as they are called, are great in spirit, but lacking in weapons and resources. An arms supplier has promised that more help was coming, and hinted that he has ties to the great rival to the Solarian League, Honor Harrington's Star Kingdom. Meanwhile, at Sector Command in the Spindle system, we find that several rebellions are breaking out as the Solarian League crumbles. But someone has been promising these plucky planetary rebels support that the Royal Manticoran Navy has no orders to provide. With a precarious peace in the balance, a difficult road lies ahead for Fleet Admiral Michelle Hinkey, Admiral Gold Peak, she's called, who also happens to be Honor Harrington's best friend. Here's part five of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter Four Fine, misty rain drizzled down from a dim gray sky. The brisk wind drove the droplets in billowing waves, almost, but not quite, like fog. And the air was cold, its edge sharpened by the approach of winter. The battered old ground car's side windows had been patched with tape, drafts probed through its interior, and its aged heater's valiant battle against the chill was dwindling toward defeat. Water splashed against the vehicle's underside as it jolted down the potholed surface road, and the passenger side's old-fashioned wiper blade was frozen uselessly in place. Indiana Graham hunched forward in the driver's seat, leaning over the wheel and bending down to peer through the lower portion of his side of the windshield, where the equally old-fashioned fan-powered defroster had actually managed to produce a very inconveniently placed clear patch. His coat was thick and reasonably warm, although it was also badly worn, but he wore neither hat nor gloves. The slender young woman huddled in the passenger seat, who looked enough like him to have been his sister, because she was, was wearing gloves, but she had her hands tucked into her armpits anyway. Her breath steamed slightly, and she looked thoroughly miserable. The car splashed through a deeper, wider puddle, throwing up wings of water on either side. Some of that water splashed in through the tape-repaired rear side window, and she grimaced as it hit her right cheek. Oh, do you think you could have found a deeper puddle, Indy? She demanded, wiping the muddy water off her face with a gloved palm. Sorry, Max. The driver took his eye off the road long enough to dart a smile at her. I'll try, but it'll be hard. Would you settle for one that's just a lot wider? 
I only ask because I see one coming up ahead. Very funny. Mackenzie Graham leaned over to look through his side of the windshield, and her eyes widened. Indy, don't you dare! Sorry, her brother repeated, perhaps a shade more seriously than before. But the only way across is through. She glared at him, but she couldn't seem to produce her customary voltage, probably because Indiana was obviously correct. This pothole stretched clear across the road, and while the security fences that paralleled the roadway were old and neglected, sagging with age, they were still sufficient to confine the decrepit old ground car to the paved, more or less, surface. Indiana gave her an apologetic smile and tapped the brake, slowing down as they approached the wind-rippled expanse of muddy water. The front wheels dropped into it with a splash that jolted both of them, and the car's motion took on a distinct floatiness. More water sprayed up on either side, although not so high this time. Then the rear wheels dropped into the same hole, and Mackenzie was afraid they were going to lose traction entirely, but they continued churning forward with a lurching, muddy sort of determination, and she grimaced and raised her feet as water found its way in through small rust holes flooding the floorboards. The incoming tide rose to almost a centimeter in depth. They slowed still further, and she braced herself for the thought of climbing out in the middle of their own private lake when the car finally bogged down. But then, with one last bouncing sway, they broke free of the pothole and regained solid ground. I was really afraid we might not make it that time, Indiana said, as if he'd read her mind and was voicing her thought for her. She gave him a speaking look, and he shrugged. Hey, I didn't pick the spot for this meeting, you know. Yeah, I do know, she agreed. She didn't look any happier, and it was Indiana's turn to grimace in acknowledgement. She was the organizer, the one who kept track of details, but she was also the voice of caution. He was the natural-born point man, the fellow who just had to get out in front, couldn't seem to leave well enough alone or settle for a life of grim, gray obedience to their betters. Their father had been like that, which was how he'd ended up sentenced to a 35-T-year term in Terrebor Maximum Security Prison. So far, Mackenzie had prevented Indy from joining him there, and he was in favor of keeping things that way. All the same, both of them realized that at least some risks had to be run if they were going to do anything about getting their father and several thousand other prisoners out of the none-too-gentle arms of General Tillman O'Sullivan's Seraphim System Security Police, among other things. I only wish I knew why the meeting got moved all the way out here, Mackenzie went on after a moment. I don't like how easy it would be for O'Sullivan or Shelton to just disappear us in a place like this without anyone ever noticing. Believe me, the same thoughts occurred to me, Indiana said. On the other hand, they don't really need to get us out in the country to do that, do they? In fact, the more I think about it, the more sense it would make for them to do exactly the opposite. Come in with all sirens screaming and bust us in the middle of the capital, I mean. SWAT teams everywhere, skags on the rooftops. Think about the statement that would make. Mackenzie shivered with more than just the cold, as her all-too-lively imagination pictured the scene her brother had just described. Golly gee, thanks, Indy, she said sourly. That ought to be good for the odd nightmare or two. 
Well, there is a counter-argument to their doing anything of the sort, he said cheerfully. If they bust us publicly, they're effectively admitting there's a genuine independence movement cooking away under the surface. I don't think they'd want to do that, especially after what's been going on over in the Madras sector. Which means it really might make a lot of sense for them to get us out in the boonies this way before they pounce after all, his sister pointed out in an even more sour tone. Well, yeah, Indiana nodded. Come down to it, though. We've got to take a chance or two if we want to pull this off. Besides, all the codes were right, Max. If O'Sullivan's Skaggs had all of that, they wouldn't have to lure us anywhere. They'd probably already know exactly who we are and exactly where we live, too, and they'd just have come calling in the middle of the night instead. You're making me feel enormously better with every word, she told him with a glare, and he shrugged. Just considering all the possibilities, and while I'm at it, what I'm actually doing is pointing out that this almost certainly isn't a trap because there are so many other ways they could have dealt with us if they knew about us in the first place and that was what they wanted to do. She made a face at him and turned back around to sit straight in her own seat, yet she had to admit he had a point. To her surprise, that actually did make her feel better. Quite a bit, in fact. There's the turn, she said, removing her right hand from her left armpit to point through the rain-streaked window beside her. Got it. Indiana guided the ground car through the open, dilapidated gate in the security fence. The rain was beginning to come down harder, turning into distinct drops rather than the fine, drifting mist it had been, and he pulled under the overhead cover of the deserted loading dock with a distinct sense of relief. Not only would it protect the car, such as it was and what there was of it, from the rain, but it also offered at least some protection against the SSSP's overflights. The Seraphim System's indigenous industrial and technical base left a lot to be desired, as the use of something as ancient and old-fashioned as asphalt rather than ceramicrete, even here in the planetary capital of Cherubim, indicated. But that didn't mean better tech was completely unavailable if the price was right, and the Skags, as General O'Sullivan's security troopers were universally and with very little affection known, tended to get the best off-world equipment money could buy. Even the Seraphim Army had been known to express the occasional pang of envy, but President Jacqueline McCready knew where to invest her credits when it came to system security, which meant the SSSP had first call on the Treasury and a large and capable stable of surveillance platforms. Not even the Skags had an unlimited supply of them, however, and serviceability was often an issue since the Seraphim education system didn't turn out the best-trained maintenance techs in the explored galaxy, so the odds were against any of them being used to keep an eye on such a dilapidated and useless stretch of the Rust Belt as the once-thriving wasteland on Cherubim's perimeter had come to be known. There hadn't been anything worth worrying about out here since the transstellars like Crestor Interstellar and Mendoza of Cordoba had moved in and eliminated Seraphim's once-vibrant small business sector. These days, either you worked as a good little helot for your out-system masters, or you didn't work at all. And God help you if you thought you could scrape up a little startup capital and try to change that situation. That was what had happened to Bruce Graham. Mackenzie rolled down her battered window and looked out, 
peering into the gloomy shadows which had gathered in the corners of the loading dock. It was still only late afternoon, but what with the rain and the onset of winter, it looked a lot later and darker, and she squinted as she tried to make out details. I don't see anybody, she said after a moment, her voice more than a little nervous. I don't either, Indiana acknowledged. On the other hand, we're a couple of minutes early. He may still be on his way, or... He broke off as a man stepped out of the dim recess from which he'd apparently been examining the ground car. The newcomer moved calmly and unhurriedly, with his collar turned up against the cold and a soft hat of a style which had once been called a fedora pulled well down. He looked like a mid-level manager, or possibly someone a little further down the pecking order from that. He also looked nothing at all like the man the Grams had expected to meet, and Indiana's ungloved hand stole into his coat and settled around the grip of the shoulder-holstered pistol. Indy? Mackenzie said softly. I know, he replied, and patted her on the leg with his free hand, never taking his eyes from the stranger. Stay here. He drew the pistol from its holster and slid out of the ground car, holding the gun down beside his right leg, where it was screened from the other man's sight. Then he stood there, his shoulders as relaxed as he could make them, while his pulse hammered and adrenaline hummed into his bloodstream. I think that's probably close enough, he said, raising his voice against the sound of the rain as the stranger came within seven or eight meters of the car. His tone, he noticed with some surprise, sounded much steadier than his nerves felt. Works for me, the stranger said calmly and shrugged. His accent was slight but noticeable, that of an off-worlder, and he held his own hands out from his sides and turned the palms towards Indiana, as if to deliberately demonstrate that, unlike the Seraphimian, he was unarmed, or at least that he wasn't actively flourishing any recognizable weapons at the moment anyway. He was a very ordinary, eminently forgettable-looking man, Indiana thought. He was of medium height, with medium brown eyes, medium brown hair, medium features, and a medium complexion. In fact, that word medium pretty much summed up everything about him. I wonder if all that's natural or if he's disguised, Indiana thought. Hell of a disguise if he is. Nobody's going to think twice if they notice him. For that matter, you could look straight at him and never notice him at all. Probably something we should bear in mind for future use. Nasty weather for an off-worlder to be out touring the sights, he observed out loud, and the other man chuckled. I hadn't expected it to be this lousy, he agreed. And if you think it's bad now, you should have been standing out here with me waiting for the last hour or so. Waiting for what? Indiana said. I appreciate your caution, talisman, the other man said. But if I were a skag, my fellow skags would already have pounced, don't you think? And I promise you, if I were a skag, I'd already have signaled the sniper team to take you down rather than let you stand there with a gun in your hand. I see. Indiana glanced around. He couldn't help himself then shrugged and holstered the pistol. The other man had a point, after all. 
Not that the fact that he did proved he wasn't a skag playing some sort of complicated game. On the other hand, he obviously did know Indiana's code name, which was at least a tentative vote in his favor. I don't know you, he said conversationally, and the stranger nodded. I know. To be honest, that's why I set up the meet out here, where there wouldn't be a lot of witnesses if you reacted energetically to the surprise of a new face. He shrugged. There's been a change of plans, unfortunately, and I'm your new contact. What kind of change of plans? Indiana's voice was tauter than it had been, and the other man smiled slightly. I'm afraid I can't be a lot more specific than that, he said. I have to worry about everyone's security, not just yours and not just my own. I can tell you it doesn't have anything to do with anything that's happened here in Seraphim, though. In fact, I'll go ahead and admit that it's more of a logistic problem than anything else. They needed your previous contact somewhere else, so they sent me in to sub for him. They did, did they? Caution is good. I like that. On the other hand, if all we do is stand here and be suspicious of one another, we're not going to accomplish a lot except to freeze our asses off. So, I believe the phrase you're looking for is, it is dearness only that gives things their value. Indiana felt his shoulders relax and drew a deep breath. And it would be strange if an article like Freedom should not be highly rated, he replied. True enough, the other man agreed, then grimaced slightly. On the other hand, if we're going to use Thomas Paine, I really would have preferred to get the quotation at least remotely right. Maybe. Indiana looked at him for a moment, then smiled. On the other hand, if the Skaggs were to acquire partial knowledge of our recognition phrases, let's say, they might just end up researching the quotation without realizing how much we'd paraphrased it. I see. The other man tilted his head to one side, eyes narrowing. Clambake didn't mention that you were the one who'd chosen the recognition phrase. I thought he had. He nodded slowly. I don't know if it would really have done any good, but it was probably a wrinkle that was worth incorporating. Oh, you can call me Firebrand. Firebrand? Indiana repeated and grinned. I like it. It's got a more proactive feel to it than clambake. I'm glad you approve, Firebrand said dryly. And I suppose that's Magpie still in the car? Yes, Indiana confirmed. You want to sit in the car to talk? The heater's not much, but it's at least a little warmer than standing out in the open this way. Actually, I'd rather step inside the warehouse, Firebrand demurred. No offense, but I prefer more solid roof and walls between me and any skag surveillance platforms that might happen by. I don't have any problem with that, Indiana said, and turned to beckon to Mackenzie. She looked at him for a moment, then opened her door, climbed out into the steadily strengthening rain, and joined the two men. Step into my office, Firebrand invited, and led the way into the abandoned warehouse. It was cold, drafty, and dreary. Abandoned stacks of plastic pallets 
leaned drunkenly and a derelict forklift, not one of the gravlifters the transtellers used in their warehouses, but a genuine old-fashioned pre-OFS forklift loomed in the shadows. Raindrops drummed on the roof, and Indiana and Mackenzie heard the waterfall sound of runoff pounding down through holes to splash on the warehouse floor. It was a thoroughly miserable venue for a meeting, Indiana reflected, watching the plume of his breath. And it was also a perfect metaphor for what had happened to Seraphim since the Office of Frontier Security had come to the star system's rescue. So, you're Clambake's replacement, he said, and Firebrand nodded. Like I say, we've had to make a few adjustments. On the other hand, one of the reasons we've done it is that we've been able to accelerate our plans a little bit. You have? Mackenzie asked, eyes narrowing, and he nodded. How much? To be honest, we're still in the process of establishing that, Firebrand admitted. The biggest problem is that shipping's scarce enough out this way, except for Crestors and Mendozas, that we have to be careful about our arrangements. He chuckled suddenly. There are some advantages to dealing with that crowd, though, not to mention the simple satisfaction of using their own ships against them. Their freight agents are about as corrupt as they are themselves, after all, and smuggling's always a growth industry in the protectorates. No one in the League has anything like a reliable estimate of the size of the grey economy out here, but everyone knows damned well that it's huge, so we might as well take advantage of it. Unless things change in the next month or two, what we'll actually be doing is shipping your goodies in covered by Crestor shipping manifests. They'll just sort of wander away from the rest of the queue once they hit dirt side. Isn't that risky? Mackenzie asked. Not really, Firebrand shrugged. I know we got the first couple of shipments in using the Trump freighter approach, but that's actually a lot riskier than doing it this way. There just aren't enough legitimate Trumps visiting your system to cover any kind of volume shipments, Magpie. If you people are going to pull this off, we need to move some serious mass and cubage, and realistically, Seraphim doesn't have enough independent business to attract a genuine Tramp. The Transtellers have choked your people out too thoroughly for that. So if we want to bring in the weapons and other equipment you're going to need, we've got to get a bit more inventive. And the good news is that if we do it this way, the freight agents who arrange the shipments are going to have every reason to keep them totally off the books without asking too many questions. Frankly, they aren't going to give a rat's ass what's being shipped, even if they realize it's actually weapons, as long as they get paid off and it doesn't come back on them. Mackenzie looked less than delighted, but Indiana nodded. He's got a point, Magpie. He's right about how hard it would be to find any kind of legitimate excuse for an independent freighter to drop in out here anyway. He grimaced. That's part of the problem, isn't it? The fact that there's nothing to attract anyone to do business with us. Yes, she admitted after a moment. Her expression firmed. Yes, it is. There are going to be some other changes as well, Firebrand went on. For one thing, the situation with the Sollies is heating up from our side as well. To be honest, the distraction quotient you and the other people we've been talking to represent may be needed more badly and sooner than we'd been thinking. 
I see, Indiana said slowly while his thoughts raced. Part of him was delighted by the prospect of accelerating the schedule. Another part of him was unhappily aware of how speeding things up might lead to mistakes, the kind of slip-ups that got people jailed or killed. And although he'd never had any illusions about the philanthropic selflessness of his allies, Firebrand's announcement had reminded him that he and the Seraphim Independence Movement were just that, as far as Manticore was concerned, a distraction for their main enemy. Well, it's not like it was any kind of a surprise, he reminded himself. And it always comes down to self-interest in the end, doesn't it? I don't doubt the Mantis wish us well. Everything I've ever heard about them suggests they wouldn't much care for what OFS has done to us here in Seraphim. But the real reason they made contact with us in the first place is that they're up against the Solarian League. Against someone that big, you need every distraction you can get, and it'd be unrealistic as hell to pretend that isn't what Firebrand's here to arrange. I guess we're just going to have to hope they don't decide they're in such deep shit that, however regretfully, they end up figuring they've got no choice but to use us as an expendable distraction. I know what you're worrying about, Firebrand said shrewdly. Don't blame you either. But look at it this way, Talisman. Sooner or later, the fact that we've been helping you, and quite a few other star systems, I might add, is going to leak, no matter how hard we try to keep it a secret. For that matter, he shrugged, there's not going to be a whole lot of reason to try to keep it secret once it's a done deal. And when that happens, we're not going to be able to afford a reputation as someone who uses, abuses, and betrays allies. That's exactly what Frontier Security's been doing for centuries, and the whole point of our support for you and the others is, at least partly, to prove we're not Frontier Security. What I'm saying is that we're not in such a deep crack that it's going to make sense to us to throw you and the others to the Hexapumas, because if we get a reputation for doing that kind of thing, no one's going to trust us enough to work with us after the dust settles. Indiana nodded slowly, although it occurred to him that if Firebrand really was planning on throwing them to the Hexapumas, whatever a Hexapuma was, that would be exactly the argument he'd used to convince them he intended to do nothing of the sort. On the other hand, it did make sense and if he and Mackenzie weren't willing to take at least a few chances, he hadn't any business organizing the SIM in the first place. I have to admit I'm not as sublimely confident as I'd like to be, he said. No reason you should be, Firebrand agreed, then smiled at his expression. Look, I'm a professional at this kind of thing. By definition, you guys are amateurs— I don't mean to be casting any aspersions by that. I'm just saying that the nature of independence movements and revolutions is that the people in charge are generally getting on-the-job training, since it's something most of them are only going to do once in their lives. And it's not the kind of career that lets you sign up for training courses at most colleges ahead of time either, right? Indiana nodded, and Firebrand shrugged. All right. That means all of this is terra incognita for you, and we're talking about your home star system. If it goes south, 
You and everyone you care about are going to be utterly screwed, talisman. That's just the way it is. I understand that. And I understand why you're bound to be nervous. Having to rely on somebody else, somebody whose motives you know perfectly well aren't the same as yours, ought to make you nervous. So don't think anybody on our side's going to get his tender sensibilities hurt if you exercise a little caution and creative scepticism, let's say. Indiana felt himself nodding again, and he was more than a little surprised by how relieved Firebrand's attitude made him feel. We'll get the weapon shipped into you, Firebrand went on. If I can, I'll try to arrange to get an instructor or two shipped in as well, but I'll be honest, the odds of my being able to pull that off aren't real high. We're way too strapped for manpower. On the other hand, we'll get you all the tech manuals, and most of the launchers and other heavy weapons come with VR simulator programs. The key point, the critical timing, is still going to be up to your people, though. There's no way we can predict from our end when the situation here in Seraphim is going to be right. That's going to be a judgment call on your part, although we'd obviously like it to happen sometime fairly soon, let's say. He smiled crookedly. We don't expect you to commit suicide by moving too early, though, if for no other reason, because we'd sort of like you to succeed and go right on being a distraction for the Sollies, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I can see that, Indiana acknowledged. To be honest, one of the things we're still working on is the best way to coordinate your actions with ours. You're obviously going to need some fleet support, to keep Frontier Fleet from just securing the planetary orbitals and dropping gendarmes and kinetic weapons on your heads. We're probably not talking about any really heavy units of our own, just something big enough to keep Frontier Fleet off your backs. But we're either going to have to have a firm schedule for when you're going to move, or else you're going to have to have some way to communicate with us to tell us when you're ready. And frankly, Providing a communications loop that's both secure and reliable and covert is going to require some thought. The good news is we've got some time to think about it before the first big shipments start coming in. If anything inventive occurs to you folks, don't be shy about sharing it. I said you're amateurs, and you are, but sometimes amateurs think outside the box in ways that would never occur to us stodgy old professionals. We'll think about it, Indiana promised him. I don't really expect we'll come up with anything that won't already have occurred to you, stodgy old professionals, but if we do, we'll certainly let you know. Good. Firebrand cocked his head to one side, eyes narrowed for a moment, obviously running back over all they'd said. I think that's about everything, then, he said finally. For now, at least. I'll be on planet for a few more days, and I'll use the channel's clambake setup to get back in contact with you before I leave. I'll also be setting up a message account here in Seraphim. I'll give you the access code so you can hack the account, rather than being an official addressee, and we'll use that for me to get you the information on the shipment schedules. I'm assuming you still have that one-time pad clambake gave you? Yes, Mackenzie said dryly. 
I'll agree we're amateurs, but we have managed to hang on to the secret code book, Firebrand. I was sure you had. This time, he gave her a dazzling smile, no mere grin. In that case, though, I think we're through here. And now that we've had a chance to get to know one another, so that you're not likely to be, oh, waving any pistols round the next time we meet? He darted a humorous look at Indiana. I think we can probably arrange to get together somewhere a little more comfortable and drier next time. A nice little mom-and-pop restaurant with tables in the back, where no one's likely to overhear a conversation, maybe. Sounds like a winner to me, Indiana agreed with heartfelt sincerity. Good. The Manticorn agent held out his hand. In that case, I think we should all be going, and if you don't mind, I'll let the two of you leave first. Not a problem. Indiana and Mackenzie each shook the offered hand in turn. Then they nodded to him, headed back out across the loading dock, and climbed into their battered old ground car. The man called Firebrand watched as the car vibrated to life, backed out of its parking space, and headed off into the rain once more. They were bright kids, he reflected. In fact, he estimated they probably had at least a five or ten percent chance of actually pulling it off. Of course, their chances would have been one hell of a lot better if they'd actually been dealing with Manticore. Well, you can't have everything, talisman. Damien Harahap, one-time Solarian gendarme, more recently agent of the Mesa System Government, and currently in the employ of the Mason Alignment, thought dryly. And at least they're a lot closer to sane than that maniac Nordbrandt. He smiled and shook his head. He actually had nothing at all against Talisman and Magpie when it came down to it. In fact, he wished them well. Not that he actually expected things to turn out that way. Still, it was nothing personal, only business. He watched the ground car disappear through the drooping gate and checked his chrono. Seven and a half minutes, he decided. That ought to be a sufficiently random interval before he headed off in the opposite direction himself. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 5. Join us next time as we continue our journey through this best-selling science fiction novel. And that's it for the podcast today. Thanks to Jim Manns, Laura Haywood Corey, Hank Davis, and Ruth Judkowitz, the composer of March to the Stars, our toe-tapping podcast theme. And thanks to Audible.com. Massive barrages of thanks to our special guest, David Drake. Please join us again next time here at the hammering heart of fantasy and science fiction and keep reaching for the stars.